0: Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all, I'm late with my microphones. I'm getting them on me right now. I'm glad to see so many of you on such a messy day came out, thank you. Is it raining outside right now? Eh, nah, sprinkling. A little messy. I the hail, though. Well, I was going to say, I saw the lightning a little bit ago. So I was wondering if I was writing the wrong notes about this chapter because <laughs> it was messy. Um, but I'm glad we're all here and safe. And those of you joining us online, we're glad you're here too. So. Think of your questions today because we are finishing up 2 Samuel today, and we are going into 1 Kings next week. We've got a few weeks of 1 First, uh, First Kings, basically, to kind of round out the year with a bit of Solomon. But we are really finishing up the story of David mostly. David will not be dead yet. Um, that's coming, but we're kind of tying up loose ends about David's story here over the next couple of weeks. And so if you've got questions, particularly about David, his character, we can obviously continue with those. Um, but if you've got them today, it's a great day to do so. And you can ask online because Bub is monitoring our social feeds and we're happy to share your questions live with us today. Um, quick note before we jump in, we are now in Lent. I assume all of you did well and went to Ash Wednesday services last week. We are now fully on into Lent. And so just a note about Lent here at St. Michael this year, we are adding a couple Wednesday special options for Lent this year. The first happens at noon each Wednesday, right here in the chapel. We're going to be having some mini recitals. Each of our musicians, plus a few special guests, we'll be doing some special recitals from noon to 1230, and then our regular weekly 1230 Eucharist will happen directly after. And so if that's something you've not really taken advantage of, maybe you can come at some point this Lent to our noon recital series. It's really lovely. They do 20, 25 minutes of really beautiful music to kind of just set our hearts and minds in a good direction for Lent. And then on Wednesday nights, again, right here in the chapel, we're gonna be welcoming guests from our community partners. We're going to be bringing in leaders of those partners to speak to us about the work that they do so tonight david woody who directs the bridge downtown is coming to speak and if you've never heard david he is so excellent he is dynamic and energetic and his he's passionate and brilliant and all of the above and so He will, along with many others over the Wednesday nights of Lent, be coming and talking about the work that they do and the partnership that St. Michael has with their organizations here in Dallas. And it's going to be an excellent series. And so I hope that you can join us for a few, if not all, of those as we continue on in Lent. And a reminder that we've got the weekday meditations that are going out digitally. Um, We have a thousand plus listens every single day for this meditation. It's really a wonderful thing. And so if you've not taken advantage of this, then I commend it to you. Um, It's less than 10 minutes. It's every weekday and it is based on the daily lectionary through Lent with a little meditation by one of the priests here at St. Michael. And I have people, I know people listening all over the country to this. And so if you've got friends or people that don't live here that you think might enjoy this, then send it to them because it's really meant to be a gift beyond our parish um, to anyone who would like it. And so if you all need any help with any of that, reply to Bud's emails and we'll make a connection to our website. It's easy, easy to find and easy to listen to. All right, let's have a prayer and we'll jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together. We give you thanks for the rain that cleanses the earth and we ask that you open our hearts and minds to your spirit. That in this holy season of Lent, as we study your word, we will be transformed and inspired to change who we are to become more and more the people you created us to be. Today, we offer before you those we hold in the silence of our hearts, those people we love, those people who need your healing touch, those people who near the end of life, and those we love and see no longer. May they all feel your presence and be uplifted by your grace. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, gang, so before we start, any questions as we kick off? Yes, ma'am. The Gibeonites, huh? And um, so he brings seven people together from the house of Saul and lets them be slaughtered. Let's be slaughtered. Let's them be slaughtered. Slaughter. That's Slaughter. a nice way to put it. Yes. What's your question? <laughs> My question is um, that he said he, the families were going on and he talked to the Lord and the Lord told him and bad blood between the Gibeonites and Saul's house. Yes. And so uh, I just wonder how David arrived at, I know the Gibeonites said to bring us people to, uh, from Saul's house, so we can take revenge? I don't know. If that's- so are you wondering why the killing? Yes. Well, I'm wondering why David um, went to those, went to the house of Saul and got seven brothers, knowing that they were going to be killed. Yeah. Okay. So why would David have gone to the house of Saul to find people he knew would be killed? Is that kind of the real question? So I am not certain, and I do not remember. And correct me if I'm wrong. Does it explicitly say David knew they would be killed? I don't remember that being explicit. maybe implicit, but I think he knew something would happen. I mean, I don't think he knew this would be a pleasure cruise. Um, but I don't know that it was quite as calculated as find people to be killed. Um, that being said though, It brings up a macro, I I mean, this is one of those I really don't know specifically, but in the macro, David obviously knew people would die. And there are many moments along the way where David makes a choice that we see as being probably controversial or wrong, or we do not understand how he could be sort of good guy when that thing happened. I think that we, as modern readers, have to take care to acknowledge that in the ancient world, I mean, Lord, please, I mean, even in today, but certainly in the ancient world, people were not equal. And so any human was not equal with every other human. And so David was the king of Israel. David was responsible for a certain group of people, and that responsibility did not include every other person on earth. And so in this instance, his responsibility to Israel, particularly as king, did not necessarily include people who would have undermined his leadership and his authority. And so, as we know, getting to chapter 21, there have been multiple moments, um, Mephibosheth being a clear one, where Saul's ancestors, Saul's heirs, his family, can be problematic to the unified state of Israel. And so, As David's reaching the end of his life and he is essentially cleaning up and consolidating, this is likely the kind of move that helps to clean up the vulnerability of Saul's bloodline, Saul's family. Saul, as the original anointed king, people can still claim the throne over David who was not Saul's bloodline. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct son. It could kind of be anyone in that line, anyone from Saul's family. And remember Saul and David do not come from the same tribe. And so there is a little bit, my interpretation would be that there's also a little bit of tribal authority happening here, which tribe is really the one in leadership. This, those moments, what I do want us to do is get too wrapped around the axle of the why would David do a thing? we have to at least ask the question. So it's a good question to ask. But we can't extrapolate too far, because if we go beyond what is in the Scripture itself, it begins to be conjecture. And although conjecture is fun—I mean, I like it as much as anyone else— we can't really base a theological opinion on too much conjecture. Um, you know, I. I'm an old stats student. And so I imagine it's sort of like, can you predict what might happen based on a trend for the next three months? Sure. Can you predict on based on the trend line for the next 12 months? Eh, probably pretty decently. Can you do it for the next 10 years? No. Like there's a point at which as you extrapolate, your conclusions become worthless. And so this is one of those moments where I don't wanna go too far beyond what's just on the page because I think then it becomes a distraction to us. David's not perfect. And we see in chapter 24, which I'll be honest with you, chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, I read through and I thought, I know I have read this before, but what in the world is happening here? Um, Because it really is confusing and it took me a bit to figure out really what is happening. And I think what is happening at the end of 2 Samuel is they're kind of collecting a few more stories of David. It's not chronological, it isn't even always narrative, but they're important stories about David for what reason, who knows. This particular one that you're asking about, my guess has to do with tribal identity more than it does with David as a person, because when the second temple is built, after the exile, it's really important to raise up the tribe of Judah um, and that, that matters. Um, it matters to the prophets, it matters to Israel's reclaiming its authority, like getting its mojo back after the exile in a sense. And I do think that that is probably as important to that particular story as anything else, less the specifics and more kind of the macro message that, David's tribe, David's people, are really meant to be the ones in charge. And it's okay that the other tribes are not around, or the other tribes are not in leadership. Or, specifically, the other tribes are practicing a different form of Judaism than the ones that are based on the Second Temple period. Because I think we all remember this. There are lots of different kinds of Jews. and. When Jesus tells the story, I think you've all heard me say this, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, Samaritans are also Jews. They're just not the right Jews because the Pharisees and the Sadducees stem from the branch of the Jews that came back from exile and rebuilt the temple. The Samaritans anchor themselves to the Jews that essentially never left, they never went to the exile. And so in the exile, that 70 years, Judaism is completely reformed into something different. So when they come back from exile, they're doing Judaism in a particular way that all these other Jews that stayed in Israel aren't doing it that way. And so when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, we shouldn't wonder why the Samaritan knows to take care of the guy who was injured on the side of the road. Well, he knew how to take care of him because they're Jews too. And they understand the commandments. They get love your neighbor, they get care for your brother, the hospitality and the concern for other people. They're not just moral, they're actually another kind of Jewish person. And that's why people get so mad at Jesus, because they're the wrong Jew. But in Jesus's story, they're the hero Jew, not the ones who are the right Jews. And so all of that comes into play with the way that these stories are told. And I think that's really what sheds light on chapters 21, two, three, and four, the ones that are kind of out of chronological order. Somewhere someone said that story is important, and I'm gonna guess it's a tribal identity issue. Other questions? All right, so I wanna clean up the very end of chapter 22 that we didn't really get to, there's a song of praise at the very end of chapter 22. So flip to chapter 22, verse 31. I'm gonna do just kind of the end of that song. As I noted quickly at the end of last week's lesson, there's we in our modern culture like to feign humility we don't really celebrate uh, fluffing ourselves up too much and being self-righteous. Now, I know that's a little ironic because the people who tend to fluff themselves up get a lot of attention, but I'm talking about the average person. The average person doesn't go around talking about how great they are. And we've kind of been trained not to do that. Even though we might explain something good about ourselves that is completely objective, we have been taught that that's kind of impolite. And so part of what we see here at the Song of Praise is an embrace of David for his own righteousness. And I wanna note that it could feel a little odd to us because that's just simply not our cultural context. But I think it's important to understand how David is trying to come to grips with his own identity and what he has done in the world, because it's important for him to do that in order to expose and shed light on God's identity. And so let's just read kind of the end of this. I'm gonna skip a few verses and I'll tell you, but let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. This God, his way is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who has girded me with strength has opened wide my path. He made my feet like the feet of deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You you have given me the shield of your salvation and your help has made me great. You have made me stride freely and my feet do not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I struck them down so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet for you girded me with strength for the battle. You made my assailants sink under me and listen to this. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked but there was no one to save them. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine like the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Jump to verse 50. For all of this, I will extol you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And we'll stop there. David is very clear in this song, this psalm, that he has succeeded exceptionally well, but he has exceeded because of God's favor. So there's a nice nuance here. David is not shy about talking about how great he is and how able he is and all the good stuff that he has done, but he says all of that without any irony and gives credit to God, and he makes a note here that God has helped him do these great things, and that God has kept his enemies from receiving the help they need. So it's a both and. God helped David, God did not help those people. I think you remember this, and we've talked about it a few times over the years. The Jews of this time would technically be what we consider monotheistic, in the sense of they only have one single God, but they do not think other gods do not exist. They are following Yahweh. So they only have the one, but they do understand there are others out there. And those others are helping other groups of people. And so although the Jews have their one, all the other groups have their gods too. And part of the Jewish identity is, our God's better than your God. And so this is, in a sense, in this Psalm, David really leaning into the strength of Yahweh that David's success, Israel's success, is because of Yahweh's strength. God, who is God? The rock, the savior, the one who comes to our aid, the one who enables us to do anything. This idea becomes incredibly important to the development of the messianic identity. And we've touched on this a few times, but it bears repeating. David's way of understanding how God works in the world, David, as in a sense, being God's representative on earth to save God's people begins to filter into how the prophets talk about the Messiah. Before, during, and after the exile, the prophets are speaking of someone who will come to make the world right. Someone who will come to save God's chosen people. Someone who will come to upend the evil and set everything right that becomes, over time, Messiah. No one person just appears one day and starts talking about the Messiah. It doesn't happen that way. There is an evolution, and Messiah really is the person who will save us. And so fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, Messiah is something that is super clear. People are expecting Someone to come and save them from whatever bad stuff is happening in the world, like David did. And this is where that comes from. This kind of psalm here, where David makes explicit, the reason all the good stuff happened is because God empowered me to save all of us. So the idea that another person, man, honestly, another man, was going to come and save everyone again, like David saved them in the first place, Take shape as Messiah. It's easy for us to think about Jesus as being the one and only, but there were lots and lots of people who were claiming to be the Messiah. It was essentially kind of clever, good business for you if you had any sort of capacity to claim to be the Messiah. You got followers, you got attention, you probably got money, And so when Jesus comes along and says he's the Messiah, he's only one of many people to say this. It's only that over the course of a few centuries, his messianic identity remains powerful that people begin to take notice that perhaps he was not like the others who claimed to be Messiah. Okay, I'm kind of way off now, so I should stop. (laughs) Yes? No one else was doing miracles for them. So the question is, were other people doing miracles? Absolutely. So, totally. Um, So miracles were good business. There are many moments in the Gospels and in Acts and even in some of the letters that reference the difference between miracles and magic. And we see this especially in Acts of the Apostles. As the Apostles start going around and telling the story of Jesus, they often find themselves in a foreign place where they're going toe-to-toe with a local miracle worker or a local magician. And the difference then being that a magician or a miracle worker outside of Jesus was kind of fudgy, Um, It was a bit more of the Benny Hinn kind of, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, y'all may love him, but it's a, and maybe he was doing it, whatever, I don't, sorry, take it away, delete that. Um, So it was, it's kind of one of those where people claim ecstatic stuff and then you kind of believe it and maybe someone throws their crutches across the stage or whatever and everyone gives money. That was what people were doing in their own way What Jesus was doing was not for money. He was walking around just healing people. And in certain scripture moments, (laughs) gospel moments, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even some of just the regular people do is they make the observation that he's different than the other miracle workers or he's different than the other people who are magicians or using magic. He's accused of being a magician at one point in the gospels because there were so many others doing similar things, but that's why his miracles were so much more extraordinary. So when he goes to Jairus's daughter, for example, who dies and raises her from the dead, you we think, we, it's easy for us to forget, Jesus's resurrection was not the only one. Jesus resurrected multiple people who had died. And so, and by the way, the apostles resurrected people who had died. So this, it was not unheard of for a person who had died to come back to life. Jairus' daughter is one of those, where here he is, a Jewish leader, his daughter dies, Jesus walks in, raises her up, and so everybody immediately says, well, she wasn't really dead. Well, they had to, or else, how how else would we explain this? It's crazy, and we would do the same thing. If Jesus were to walk in and raise someone back to life, we would never, if that happened today, we would never say, That person was dead and now resurrected, and that must be God. That's not how we operate. Even if we are faithful, good people, we would immediately be skeptical of that. And that's all they were doing as well. And so, no, Jesus was not doing something totally unique. He was doing it in some unique ways. But fundamentally, much of what he did was not unique to him alone. Other questions? When did the Jews become monotheist? Did it just gradually Oh, when did the Jews become monotheistic? So, mm. hmm, it's a good question. It, it's absolutely an evolution. There was not a moment. However, you can connect a few specific dots. The first dot being God's covenant with Abraham. That's really the first kind of historic moment where Abraham, as a Semitic person, receives this revelation from God to form a covenant to follow Yahweh. And so he does. So as he moves and as he has children, Isaac and then Jacob and then, you know, Joseph and the others, as that evolves, Yahweh is the one God. They go to Egypt, they're in Egypt for 400 years. It is not until Moses takes them out and they are at Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments that they become what we would describe as Jewish. So up until that point, they are Semitic peoples, they're Israelites, but they are not Jewish. But they're still monotheistic. So Moses' Ten Commandments moment that pivots into Judaism is not disconnected from the near 500 plus years of understanding the world through a single God. They just didn't have a lot of the details. Judaism is a story of detailed development. And so you've got Abraham moment, they get the clarity of one God, and then you've got the whole like be circumcised to show that you've got one God and that kind of stuff. 500 years later, you get the 10 commandments. You're like, okay, now we've got 10 rules. That kind of becomes Jewish. Then as they go from there out in the wilderness, they start to ask questions about the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are relatively simple. And so they begin to build out more rules. By the time you get to David, there is a nice big legal system in place, but it is nothing like the legal system that happens after the exile. Because although the legal system in David and Solomon's time was good, it obviously was not good enough to keep them out of exile. Cause when they go to exile, they say, we did something wrong. We need to make sure we don't do something wrong again. And so their answer to let's not do something wrong again is to just uh, exponentially increase the rules of Judaism. I mean, 10, 20 times more rules. And so that's why you have libraries and libraries. That's where rabbis come from. Rabbis are not priests. It's, it's funny, because I, I you all know I do interfaith dialogue things all the time, and I will sit with rabbis and imams to talk about Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Imams and rabbis are not pastors. That's not their job. They are lawyers. Really, they're, sa- they're canon lawyers, in a sense. A rabbi and an imam is meant to know the law. They are meant to know the scripture, and then to interpret the law to the people. They are not visiting hospitals, They are not doing all this. This is not what they do. They are legal scholars, which is why you do not meet dumb rabbis. I've said this before. Um, You meet lots of sweet, kind, faithful, dumb pastors Um, because that's not exactly what, that's not exactly what we're really meant to be. Um, It's a different kind of role. It doesn't mean that different, Episcopal churches tend to honor intellectual engagement and capacity, yes. But you know tons of other not Christian denominations where if you've got charisma, you've got a pulpit. Yeah. And I mean, you may never have studied anything ever from anyone, you, but you love Jesus. And so you're gonna tell everybody about it and raise up a church, which I don't wanna say that's wrong, but it is a totally different way of being than say what happens in Judaism and Islam. Um, Jews and Muslims do not look to rabbis and imams for care. No. That is not, which is why you've also met like pretty crabby rabbis. Um, because that's not the point. They're not meant to be nice. Now, if Some are nice, great. But that's a bonus. They're meant to be smart. And so uh, that whole thread of being comes out of the extreme development of the legal tradition of Judaism after the exile. How else? Could you know what to do if you didn't study the law all the time? It's like a lawyer today. A lawyer is studying constantly to keep up with the way laws change. That's what a rabbi was for centuries, was simply a lawyer trying to keep up with all the different details about how not to do things wrong. And that's why Jesus comes in and one of Jesus's big things is don't worry about this. You know, when he's walking on the Sabbath and his disciples are hungry, they pick some corn or wheat or however you want to interpret the Hebrew word or the Greek word. Um, And then the rabbis freak out. And Jesus is like, excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if they're hungry, they eat. And that kind of simplistic look at the way that humanity relates to God totally upends everything that the Jews had done for centuries tangent again. Any more? All right, I have to finish now. We have to go on to chapter 23. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so let's look at chapter 23. A note about 23 is compared to 22. Chapter 22 is a psalm or a song. Chapter 23 is an oracle. Even though they're both written in poetic verse, they really do function differently. Kind of literarily, they are different animals. And so as we go into chapter 23, we're told it's the last words of David. You've already heard me say before, David may or may not have written this. Let's just go with David wrote this because it's easier for us to discuss it if we just all agree, let's just start there. So whether David did this or it was done after David's life It doesn't matter. Let's just go with David, wrote this. These are the last words of David. So let's look at the first seven verses, because this really takes a look at leadership in a critical way that I think we will find helpful. So chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloud this morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house like this with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But the godless are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be picked up with the hand. To touch them, one uses an iron bar or the shaft of a spear, and they are entirely consumed in fire on the spot." Okay, we'll pause there. Leadership, David's identity, is identified in two clear parts in this oracle. If we look at the second half of verse three and verse four, we see how this is unpacked. Verse three B is one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming on the rain on the grassy land. What David is saying here in this oracle is, leadership comes in two parts. There's faithfulness and there's reverence, translated here as just and fear. And so we're gonna unpack these two things together. Essentially, what is happening here in the conclusion of David's life is that a good king, a good leader, is both faithful and reverent, or just and fearful. And so we're gonna turn this around just a little bit. Let's start with faithfulness. the Old Testament concerns itself with faithfulness in relationship to God and with other people. I'll say that differently. As we look at what the Old Testament teaches of faithfulness, faithfulness is not just to God. Faithfulness is both to God and to other humans. Now, as I noted earlier, that good first question was that is not always every other person because it is clear for a long time, most of human history, tribalism is alive and well. And so your faithfulness is not to all humans. Your faithfulness is to your tribe because anyone who's not in your tribe is essentially less than human. The dehumanization of people has a very long, strong history in our time. What David is saying here is that one cannot be a good leader without being faithful to both God and to other people. What's interesting about that is if we think back to the mistakes that David makes, David regularly repents to God. We've said this many different times in here. Why is David lifted up and why is David held up as a paragon example for us? Mostly it's because David repents. But when David repents, most of the time, David repents and reconciles with God. David doesn't always repent, even most of the time, and reconcile with the people who have been hurt. Occasionally, we have a few examples of David reconciling with other people. But most of the time, David doesn't really deal with reconciliation with other people. David's really only dealing with reconciliation with God. I find that fascinating because here we have this oracle that anyone who has read 2 Samuel would understand that essentially we're saying David's actually not doing this right. David's not as faithful as he should be because David does not prioritize people and their hurt as much as he prioritized God and his hurt. Does that make sense? (sighs) Hold that. Now let's talk about the other side of this coin, and that is the reverence or the fear. Fear is a hard word for us, and so even though technically the NRSV translates this word as fear, it's not like with any other translation, there are multiple English words that can serve in this capacity. And I'd rather us think of fear in the sense of reverential, not scared. And so there is a healthy fear of God that produces reverence in a good leader, not being scared. And so I love the idea of reverence here as linked to leadership, because in a sense, one cannot rely on one's own capacity and ability and talents alone. We are all gifted and those gifts are meant to be used in the good, for the good of the world, on behalf of God, to give God glory, yes. But those gifts can never be used as effectively without God's participation. And so here we see that the reverential nature of leadership is such that in leadership, you really have to be aware of your dependence on God and not of your own accord. If you're not in a leadership role, it's probably easier to understand your reliance on and dependence on God. But when you're in a leadership role and people are telling you how great you are all the time, it is so easy to begin to think that you alone are great. When really, all you're doing is using the gifts God gave you with God's help to do anything that anyone ever perceives of as good or great. And that is incredibly important, along with the faithfulness piece, to make a good leader. Now, as I noted before, this is not meant to be about priestly or pastoral identity. It'd be easy for us to just take this and place it in church. David's a king. David's talking about kingly leadership. And so for us, this is important to put on the worldly leaders. So this is political leaders and the like. Although it's of course applicable to leadership in any capacity, this is instructive for us today. I think it's instructive for us when we look at the leaders of the world and we're tempted to think that one is good, one is bad, one is right, one is wrong, one is whatever to apply this kind of balance on them. And I think very clearly we can see, most people fail the test. Um, It is not, it is really hard to find a person who is doing this right or well. And oftentimes when someone appears to be trying to do this well, all of the cynical arrows are thrown at them. You know, if a politician actually does go to church, then they're obviously doing that in order to manipulate people. Or their faithfulness is wrong. Like whatever they think about it is incorrect or whatever. And so this is really hard for us. Not our own identity necessarily, but the way that we are able to perceive leadership in others, the way that we're able to yoke ourselves to leaders is very tricky because mostly politicians today have not been rewarded for being good. And so I think most people would prefer people to be good, even though most politicians are not rewarded for it. Case in point, sweet Jimmy Carter, who is going to die here any day, um, how many of us would say very quickly, not a very great president, but what a good man? Right, why? Could he not be a good president? I think for many people, he, we would say because he was a good man. That's hard. That's a difficult place to be in. Because should they be mutually exclusive? No. But in our system, they almost always are. Why? Why is that okay with us? It shouldn't be, is my answer. Um, but of course, the normal people don't often get a voice because we're not lunatics. And so we don't scream louder than everyone else and we don't light stuff on fire like everyone else and we don't do. So unless you're screaming on one side or the other, you're kind of just exhausted. I mean, most people I talk to, most of the friends I know are just sort of tired of it and they ignore it and they become apathetic because it's exhausting. It's worrisome, it can be fearful if you're not literally lighting something on fire on one end of the spectrum or the other, it just seems like you have no option. And that should not be good enough for us. I think that's one of the reasons why I like St. Michael, is that we don't play partisan games. We are political, for sure. That's why we are so engaged with outreach and service and volunteerism, because we absolutely go into the world, into the mess, and try to make things better. That is Truly political But the partisanship we don't play that game because that's just human mess All over the place and we need to ignore all of that and to do the things that Jesus told us to do Well, that was a tangent again, um, so <laughs> What I do want to say though before we keep going is I love the idea here and I think it's important for us that good leadership is described as sun and rain. So we get this lovely metaphor of how essentially a good leader impacts the world the way sun and rain impacts the world. And why I think that's important for us is because let's start biologically. We know the healthiest plants and read the healthiest food. Because honestly, at this period of time, when people talked about health of plants or health of the, of the earth, they're really talking about productive value of the earth because they were so aware of the earth providing food in a way that we are not, that we have to just put ourselves in that mindset. This is not a comment on gardening. This is a comment on sustenance. And so good food from healthy plants comes because of a combination of sun and rain. And on a stormy day like this, it's important that we remember all sun and no rain produces a desert. And all rain and no sun produces a total humid mess that you can't grow anything helpful to eat. And so you have to actually have a good balance of rain and sun in order to genuinely get really healthy crops that are sustaining. For us, we can often wish so much that we only get the sun. Because the sun feels good. It's warm, it's happy, it fills us up, and it's great. And when the rain comes, the storms can be dark and scary. And yet, if we, as people, don't have those stormy moments, if we don't have those rainy experiences where we're not feeling warm and dry and positive and happy and joyful all the time, then when the sun comes out, it does not actually hit us in a way to help us grow. We need both. And good leadership helps us remember both are valuable. In our lives, if we don't have the good, We can't sustain ourselves through the bad, but if we don't have the bad, we never recognize the good. And so it is this very virtuous cycle where we do need both. I've said before that one of the problems with Christianity in America, and I might even say Christianity in the West, is that the Western mentality of life has very much become, and we don't even, we're not even aware of this, it's just the way we function, that we expect life should be easy. And when life is hard, we're really angry about the hard stuff. Outside of such an affluent way of living, people expect life to be hard. And when they get moments of ease, they are so grateful. Those two perspectives are really instructive for us. We have completely accidentally, we've just absorbed it, believe that the world is meant to be comfortable and good and supportive and a pleasure. And then when we hit a ditch, even if it's momentarily, we're like offended. Why would God do that to us? I mean, that's usually what we say. How could God have let that person get cancer? How could God have let that person have a mental illness or lose their job or get divorced or any number of things? But instead, the way that humanity has been almost in all time up until modern Western civilization is that life was a slog. Life was scary. People didn't know if they would live or survive. One cut could kill you. And so when there were moments of joy, like a day off, you know, two days a year, you didn't have to go work in the fields. Man, you gave thanks for that beautiful respite. If we could get back to that, then I think a lot of this that we're studying would make so much more sense. And so, I'll stop there before we get on to chapter 24. Questions or thoughts on that? I know I hit you with all different kinds of random ideas. (laughs) Chickens. Okay, here we go. Then let's go to chapter 24. Chapter 24, okay. I I don't even want to do this chapter. It is. It is strange. And here's the gist of chapter 24. I'm not even gonna read it. God asks David to count the people. And so David wants to take a census, but David directs Joab, remember Joab, his friend, David directs Joab to go off and do a census, count all the people. And David directs Joab to count the people who can fight. And not only the Israelites, but kind of everybody that Israelite touches. So remember at this point, David's created a mini little empire, So it's not just Israel, it's inclusive of a few other non-Israelite tribes that kind of ring the Israel land. So do not think Roman Empire, do not think Greek Empire, it's not that big. But it's big enough to where it includes people kind of under David's control, outside of the Jewish umbrella. And so David does this weird thing, and there's nothing in here that indicates why David does this. David instructs Joab to go off and count all the people who can fight, including everybody outside of Israel, too. Joab questions him, and Joab says, "Wow, That doesn't quite seem, I don't even understand what's happening here. Joab says, it doesn't quite seem like what God wants, really, I, why, how does Joab know that? But David, seemingly ignorant, says, nope, I want it done that way, and Joab says, okay. So Joab goes and does it, and then God gets mad that David counted in the wrong way, okay? So then, God speaks through the prophet Gad to David and says, all right, you made a mistake, and now you're gonna have to pay for it, and you can pay for it in one of three ways. You can do A, B, or C, and C is a plague, And David, it's a three-day plague, and David says, I'd pick door three. And so God brings the plague on. 70,000 people are killed in this plague. And then as the angel of death is moving toward Jerusalem, God says, wait, stop. We'll end here. So long as David does something right, and David goes and builds an altar and sacrifices to God, and God stops the plague. The end of 2 Samuel. Um, I really, I'm not sure. I don't really know what to tell you about this. I want you to know what happened. I want you to know that it was included, and from a literary perspective, why does this end 2 Samuel? I do not know, and apparently nobody else knows because I tried very hard to figure out if some smart person could teach me why this is here. Um, I don't remember learning this chapter at any point in my past, and apparently it's because nobody knows what to do with this. So it happened, you should be familiar, and so that you know that it happened, and that's it. And so 2 Samuel comes to an end with essentially the end of David's reign. Like I said, David is not dead yet. So immediately next, when we get into 1 Kings, David is old and about to die. And so 1 Kings begins with a transition from David to who will be king next and that's Solomon. David and Solomon are very different people. Saul and Solomon bookend David's kingship and they're both good and bad for different reasons. The big note, and I'll say this five more times before we finish this year, that I want you to be able to leave with is, David unified Israel. David did not build the temple. Solomon built the temple. And Solomon is David's son. Neither are heirs to Saul. So if you leave this whole year, and you know that cold, I have done my job, because so much else is detail. Um, but I remember first becoming a pre, first being a rector actually, when I was really preaching regularly, and I referenced something in a sermon, and a few people asked me, and all of a sudden it was like a light bulb went off, and I said, oh my gosh, we don't know the Bible. And I just referenced David in relationship to Moses or something like that, and people didn't know, they didn't know just immediately that Moses came before David, right? I mean, just like the basics, excuse me did i just hear someone gasp listen i i love that you gasp but let's be honest if i were to ask in the church like if i were to pass out a little note card and i said put these five characters in chronological order i am not certain that we would know who came first and so it is It is okay, that's why we do this, is that we get the big picture. So as much as we love the details, don't forget that there are some super helpful macro nuggets to hold in your mind. And so David, unifier, Solomon, temple. Remember that. And then like the whole year is worthwhile. So as we come to the end of David's monarchy, before his death, we'll get there, Think back to the Ark of David's story. I mean, from the very beginning, shepherd out in the field, not even important enough to come and meet Samuel. All the way to now, everything that has happened, it is tumultuous. There are very few, if any, people in Scripture that have so much of the entirety of their life included in the story. Even people who have big stories, like Job and others, you don't get a lot of backstory. I hadn't thought about this until now. You probably don't get a full characterization of any other single person in all of scripture, more than David, from childhood, to being a teen, to being a young adult, to being an adult, to being an elderly person, I mean, you know, pieces of David's story from every single phase of his entire life and expounded. I don't know that anyone else has all that much in the entirety of scripture. So it's important for us to make sure we turn that around in a meaningful way. And so as we close this off, is there any part of David's story that you wonder about? Or is there any part of David's story that connects with another part and you're not sure how the connection really happens, or is there something that's been eating at you and you've wanted to ask and you haven't asked, take heart and have courage and ask, because somebody is interested as well. And so, like a good teacher, I'm going to be quiet while you think of a potential question. Go for it. That we do something bad and that God would come and us—that mm-hmm. really bothers me. And it just seems consistent with the, how you said at the end um, that God brings a plague onto them. Just—it's always that there's no grace, no mercy. There's—I don't know—they see God differently than. Okay, so let me repeat back to you, because I was going to say, I, I kind of hear a question in there. So it is frustrating to see God characterized as maybe vengeful or mean, but is the deeper question, and to say no if it's not, if the, is the deeper question how we understand God's action in the world differently than perhaps they did in ancient times? That's a different question. I can take the first one, if that's really the one that you'd like to ask. Well, it's hard to think. When you said, we always say, God, why did you let this happen? Yes. So that is the question. Yeah. Um, it is true that through most of history, humans have understood that God or the gods, wherever you are in human history, interact with the world very directly. So there are no accidental moments. God, God or gods, let's just go with Yahweh. Chooses or not chooses to act and inter- engage with humanity, whether through prophets or through kings or through individuals or through, you know, a donkey or whatever. Um, we've got moments where God is extremely present and extremely active. And then it appears as if, post Jesus, it doesn't happen quite that way anymore. For me, I have always understood that the way these stories were written are meant to, mm, I think the right term might be, well, it's not really that. I was gonna say anthropomorphize God, but not really, sometimes. Um, Put a tangible impact on God, personify God in a very specific way that is not a feeling but is super tangible. I am not convinced that the stories happened with that kind of tangible impact, the way that the stories are told. Because up until about the 18th century, stories were never meant to be historic, they were just meant to be true. And so if we are able to read all of the Bible as true, but disconnect, historicity from that truth. I do think what we will see is that God's impact on the world is very similar today that it was back then. Now, when you raise up the idea of being vengeful, I think what we see in the person of Jesus is that God is not vengeful, God is loving. And that when things happen that are painful, people often attribute that as a decision that God has made. And what I think we see in Jesus is that it's most likely that it's a decision God didn't make. And so pain comes because the world is very broken. God's healing act through Jesus is not actually meant to fix this world. It's meant to give us the tools to make the world better and the promise that this broken world is not all there is. That's necessary to hold in tension with the way that the Old Testament understands God to function. Because the Old Testament is so much more of a tangible experience of God. And it's easier for us to understand God in a tangible way and when Jesus speaks of God in a much more spiritual way we are left with questions because we're frustrated we want to touch it we don't want to feel it and so we kind of come back to God's tangible nature in the Old Testament which is one of the reasons why whenever. There's conflict, and whenever people speak out about whatever God did or did not do, it's almost always, I mean 99% of the time, it is Old Testament God stuff that they speak of. It's never Jesus God stuff, because Jesus didn't give that to us. Jesus makes God clearly out to be a person who loves, and it's the power of love that heals. It doesn't just make everything fine. That's not what love is. It's not cheap. And it's love that's, that transcends this life, which is why we say death, that life is not ended, it's only changed, because that's the promise that we receive. How do we know this? How do we understand it? How can we define it? We cannot. That's the faithful moment. And it doesn't, and I want to make sure that we're clear. I see you. It doesn't make sure that we're clear that this is not an intellectual ascent. So we cannot think our way into faith. We have to act our way into faith. And that's one of the problems I have with Christianity as it exists pretty much almost the entire time, is that it was so much about what we believe instead of what we do. And when I read the Gospels, Jesus is way more concerned with what people do than what they believe. He's not unconcerned with belief, so don't hear that, but that's 20% of it. I think 80% of what Jesus is concerned about is what we do. Jesus wants us to love as action, not love as feeling. And Jesus wants us to take care of each other as action, not to have well wishes. And Jesus wants us to believe that everyone is equal and made in the loving image of God, not because we wish to, but because we have met them. And we understand our own humility and imperfection is reflected in their humility and imperfection. And we do not exist in the echo chamber of our own being. We are related to everyone else all the time. And it matters how people are treated. And it matters that we are part of treating them well. And so I do think that the pivot toward the act of love as being what heals us is really important for us to hold intention to whatever kind of characterization of God we see in the Old Testament that is not reflected in Jesus. This is gonna get comment because I see the Old Testament as just the kind of blatant battle between good and evil. The Old Testament is a battle of good and evil, between good and evil? Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, I do not... I think you're right. And I think we see a lot of that bleed over into the New Testament. I'll be honest with you. I have trouble with the... with Satan and the devil and this idea of evil as being as a being that somehow fights the goodness of God. Theologically speaking, that is dualism. Um, Essentially, when we talk of, oh, I'm so over time, I'm sorry, I'm gonna tie this up real fast. Theologically speaking, when we talk of God and the devil, we're really talking about two gods, a good God and a bad God. We need to resist that kind of language because we are monotheistic. There is only God. That's why so often people, and I am, I do this, speak of the good is God and the bad is the absence of God. And so that's a much cleaner way, I think, of understanding good and evil. Evil is really no God being present, and the good is God's full presence. And I'm sorry, I went over, we gotta end now. And if you wanna talk about that another time, I'm happy to. Have a lovely day, hope to see you soon, bye.